Welcome to the Kook Center Podcast, and here's your host. Now you listen to me, mister. I work for a living, and I mean real work, not writing down gobbledygook. Michael Preston. It's time for the Kook Center Hour to make its triumphant return to the podcasting form. We're not going to be doing blog talk radio, any of that stuff anymore. I wasn't too pleased with the quality of it. I'm Michael Preston, here from our Greenwood studios of the Kook Center Hour, special 90-minute edition of the Kook Center Hour as we wrap up the fiscal year that was at Washington State University Athletics as we go into, is it fiscal year 2016? starting this month i don't know how fiscal years work i just know it's a new one starting on july 1st that's all i know about fiscal years we're going to talk about uh women's soccer i'm going to go through another coaching change after another appearance disappointing appearance in the ncaa tournament we'll sit down with jeff newser talk a little bit about the football season that was touch on what's coming down the pipe as well and we're going to talk to Craig Powers about men's basketball and the season they had. And then I'll sit down and chat about women's basketball and kind of the up and down year they had. Maybe a little disappointing at the end. They didn't get to the NCAA tournament. And then, of course, we're going to talk baseball and new head coach Marty Lees. Uh, another head coach at Washington State after, you know, 70 years with only two head coaches. Now they've had five since Boba Brayton retired uh, in the early 90s. But we kind of have to begin here with... Uh, with where it all ended uh, in June. And I don't really even know where to begin here. Um, begin with words that haven't already been said about Dr. Elson Floyd. And we've written a lot of words on this website about what he meant to Washington State what Elson Floyd did not just for the office of the presidency at Washington State as Brian Floyd pointed out he kind of made it someone you wanted to be involved with again after V. Lane Rollins pretty much did all he could to make you not want to really care about who the president was not just that but what a man from North Carolina who had no connection to Washington State and had job offers to go elsewhere. What that man did to embrace this community, to embrace Pullman, Washington, and Washington State University, um, was unheralded. And I think you saw that in how people reacted to his passing. There aren't a lot of other top administrators at other schools who the reaction to their death would be such an outpouring of grief from alumni, from students, from people who weren't even involved with the school at all, from legislators who worked with him, from business leaders who saw and spoke to him. This is unusual. This is not par for the course when other university presidents leave us now it's not to say that other schools don't care about the university presidents they obviously do but such an outpouring of emotion and love is not normal 
And I think we all kind of discovered that last weekend or a couple weekends ago when Dr. Floyd passed away. You just, you don't see that every day when a university president passes away. As I wrote a couple of weeks ago, and as we've seen so many other people say, Elson Floyd wasn't my university's president. He was my friend. I did not know EFLO personally. I did not ever share extended periods of time with him as so many others did. But even in that short amount of time I spent with him, very, very brief, you got the feeling that the man cared about you, your education, and what you brought to this university that he was running. Nothing about him was not genuine, not warm, not caring. And when you look at it in hindsight, and now we know that Elson Floyd was quite literally dying as he fought to bring a medical school to Washington State or at least give the school permission to pursue it. What more can you say about a man than that? What more can you say about someone who had no connection to Washington State and did everything we have ever asked of anybody who has come to Pullman to embrace us, to love us, to understand what it is that we love so much about this school, where it is, and the people who are in it. What more can you ever ask of anyone than what he gave you? Elson Floyd literally gave this school his life. Quite literally. I don't know anyone else who has ever made a sacrifice as large as he has. And I wrote things more eloquent than what I've been saying now, but... Even weeks later, this is still hard to talk about. It's hard to talk about the loss of a man who did so many incredible things for an alma mater I love so much. And when you see a person... When you see a person care for something that you love like that it it makes it <laughs> it makes it really hard to see them go and as selfish as it might be we didn't get enough time with him we were robbed by something like cancer to take arguably the most influential person in such a short time frame that he was here in the university's history 
we were robbed of a man who got WSU through the worst economic downturn in decades. Robbed of a man who refused to do what the University of Washington did and take more out-of-state students just to close a budget gap. What did Elson Floyd do? He doubled down on his commitment to the students of this state, the people that universities and institutions in Washington are charged with educating. He doubled down on them. We will not turn them away. We will educate them. And he did it all with a big smile. I, that smile was just the most infectious thing in the world. And his mustache was the most glorious I've ever seen. What more is there to say about a man who did all that? Who is causing me to well up? I don't think this university is ever going to forget him and what he did for us and for people who have yet to pass through the halls of Washington State. What an incredible man. In every sense of the word and a man you should aspire to be more like every day. Come back, we're going to talk a little bit about women's soccer. Another... Kind of disappointing postseason after a really good regular season, and they need to get... They have another new coach again. Now on their fourth coach in six years for that most successful program at the school right now. And then we're going to talk to Jeff Neusser about a little bit of football coming up as well here on the Peace Center Out. women's soccer right now we're gonna move on to football here with jeff newser in just a couple of minutes but as part of our fiscal year wrap up wrap up rather obviously want to touch on uh the most successful team at wsu i think over the past few years if you want to go back far enough we can include the men's basketball team but i think for the purposes of what we're doing here the women's soccer team has certainly been the most successful team uh at the school postseason wise but Never really able to get over that quote-unquote hump, really, except for one year in the postseason tournament. And now we're on a different coach again. Steve Nugent left after the season was over, citing personal reasons. Todd Schullenberger hired as the uh, new head coach, previously the associate head coach at Texas Tech. So he does have Division One experience. This is his first head coaching gig. Uh, I, I think, though... What we want to focus on, you know, obviously it's just, it's so difficult to, to deal with this much coaching turnover and still be successful on the field. But luckily you had last year in Gervine Clare, arguably the best goalkeeper in school history. You had Nicole Setterland who really set the pace for the offense last year. And you had a lot of other really good offensive players. Jocelyn Jeffers was really good. Uh, up front as well 
Bo Bremer did well. Uh, it's just, you know, all that good talent on that team. And the Pac-12 is no, you know, easy conference to get to. You have a lot of really good teams in there every year. Stanford's always good. USC's usually pretty good. UCLA as well. Cal can do some decent things. Uh, the Arizona schools are always okay. It's not as if this is a easy conference to kind of waltz through. And I think Washington State's sustained success as a women's soccer program is incredible, just A, in that conference, but B, the fact that they're now in their fourth head coach in six years. I mean, it, you, you, <laughs> what team could survive, what normal team could survive being on coach number four in barely the last half a decade? And I don't know what the, you know, Matt Potter, there were issues between him and some of the athletic administration. Kadani McAlpine was a young single guy left for USC. That's a really good job in LA. Uh, Steve Nugent had his personal reasons for leaving. I don't think there's any one thing you can point to for there being this incredible turnover with that head coaching position. I don't think it's necessarily a matter of WSU being a stepping stone uh, the facilities are sure, certainly going to improve. I maybe it's just maybe it's just as stupid and as simple as saying it's a little bit of an aberration coaching wise. But last year Washington State uh, got through that schedule, came out on the other side okay, and then lost to Seattle. It was the first time in school history that ever lost to Seattle, and they lost to them in the first round of the NCAA tournament in Pullman. I mean, that's just a bad time to pick to lose your first ever game to the Red Hawks. And they did it in Pullman. I don't know what the problem is with the postseason and this team. But they they seem to be able to put it all together before they get to the postseason. And then it all just kind of unravels on them a bit. They did keep their unbeaten streak against the University of Washington intact. Haven't lost to them in the last 11 years now. Haven't lost to them in Pullman in something like 20 years. Been a really incredible streak for them against Washington. But again, last year, despite all that really good talent on the team, they can't get over that hump. And we'll have to wait and see what kind of system Coach Schellenberger wants to run with this team. I'm not, you know, positive what his uh, uh, what his ideas of, you know, or what he wants to do offensively, defensively with this team. Ted or Ted Nugent, that'd be very different. Steve Nugent uh, played a little bit more defensive soccer, and I thought he did a really good job with the defense. They didn't have a lot of returning players in there uh, last year, and he made really made something out of not too much back there. They played really good defense last year, so we'll have to wait and see what they do. I'm, you know, again, they're they're scheduled for this season, this coming season, which was just released, sets up okay in terms of relative easiness at the beginning of the year. They play Eastern Washington in an exhibition, then they actually open the season in Seattle against the Red Hawks, and they play Idaho, Boise State, Montana, Oklahoma State, Cal State, Fullerton, Gonzaga, and Portland before they get into the Pac-12 slate. They will play everybody in the Pac-12. But that non-conference schedule, some easier teams on there. 
And I think the expectation, again, even with the coaching changes, they're going to get to the NCAA tournament. Now they've got to get past the first round, though. I, this is just, you know, I'm not sure what the problem has been, whether it's a mindset issue, whether it's a confidence issue, what it is. But something has to happen. Something has to get them over that hump. Um because the teams they're running into aren't necessarily any better or worse than them. They're roughly the same. I mean, they're all in the postseason tournament. But another good regular season from them last year and just kind of fell f- really flat in the postseason. Which is disappointing because you, you want that success to continue into the postseason, at least getting to the quarterfinals of the tournament. And they did advance one round. And I believe that was after their 2009 season where they advanced one round and lost in the second round of the tournament. But they've been no further than that in the last 10 years. And so we kind of like to see them, this elite program at Washington State, kind of take that next step and get to the next round of the NCAA tournament. Maybe even make a little run. Because the Pac-12 prepares you well for that. You, you're ready to get beat up week in and week out in that conference. You're ready to do that. And so let's see them take that next step this year because we know we know they can survive coaching changes. We know the team will be okay as we go through coaching changes. Facilities are going to get better. Recruiting should get better. It should all be getting better with the women's soccer team. Let's see if they can take that next step this year. Jeff Neusser, coming up, we're going to talk a lot about football. Open a beer. It's going to be, well, not depressing, but open a beer. Center Hour. Uh, first thing we're going to get to here on our end of the year, kind of the end of the fiscal year wrap-up for Cougar Athletics is, of course, the moneymaker, if you can call it that, uh, football. Uh, kind of underperformed last year, and to tell us how much they underperformed last year and how disappointing it was, our very own uh, managing editor, Jeff Neusser, is here. Uh, Jeff, that was not that was not a fun 3-9, and nine, was it? <laughs> not not that three and nine is ever fun. Not that three and nine is ever fun, but yeah, I mean, I was, I was doing some recently where I was looking back at the Cal game, and I was just like, yeah, you're just, you know, it's still the whole thing just kind of boggles the mind. Like not not just that game, just kind of the whole season, and you know, and I was also doing some, you know, looking back at some defensive stuff, and just realized that just you know how horrendously awful the defense was, yeah. and just. Yeah, it's you know it feels like uh, honestly it kind of feels like the the end of the Super Bowl where I'm just kind of like oh yeah that happened okay I'll be fine if I never remember that ever again for the rest <laughs> of my life and just you know move on to the next season that's kind of where I'm at you know you talked about but, the defense you know but if but if we don't talk about last season then you have no show so we're right. okay to talk about no well it's it's an end of the fiscal year we got to review our fiscal year of Cougar athletics uh, the I I think that. We all kind of knew in our heart of hearts that 2013 six and six was probably an overperformance from them. They they weren't they weren't a six and six football team. I think some folks were expecting seven and five last year, six and six again. Uh, but 
I, I think we might have thought maybe there's a chance that they regress a little bit. I don't think anybody thought regression from six and six to three and nine was even possible. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I you know, it, 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 this is just kind of how things happen with sports, at least the way I look at it. You know, where it's like, you know, you had a season where you went, you know, and I'm going to throw out the bowl game result because bowl games are just kind of what they are. You know, yeah. But, you know, we had a six and six season um, where you know maybe they won a game or two that maybe they shouldn't have won, or we maybe maybe that's too strong. But you know, they were fortunate to win, right? Mm-hmm. And so. You know, they win a couple of games that maybe they're a little fortunate to win in order to get into the bowl game. And, you know, I, I even remember thinking at the time that maybe they played, uh, you know, they might have played a little bit above their, you know, a little bit above their weight, punched a little bit above their weight in getting there. And then, you know, this year was sort of the opposite of that. You know, they they sort of crapped out on a couple of games, you know, notably, I mean, Cal, I mean, you know, does it feel different if we're four and eight? Probably not that different, but they no. probably also should be records. And so yeah. all of a sudden now you're five and seven, you go, ah, you know, they regressed by one game. And, you know, you start throwing in all those things. And so, <clears throat> you know, they kind of went through the two extremes in two seasons where they, you know, overperformed one season and then underperformed, probably overperformed by a couple of games one season and then underperformed by a couple of games the next season. And all of a sudden you have a, you know, a three or four game swing. So, you know, it's. I don't think anybody imagined it, but I'm also not looking at it thinking that, um, you know, somehow it's setting us up for a disaster going forward, I guess. I, I mean, I, guess, I don't know. Like, I, I hate the fact that it was 3-9, and nine, but I'm also not, you know, going, oh, my gosh, coming off a 3-9 and nine season. They, they're going to be terrible next year, you know. Mm. I think, you know, they've, they've addressed some of the issues that they had, you know, hiring a new defensive coordinator, and, um, you know, and I think the offense will still roll. So, you know, it was disappointing, but... You know, I, I I don't know that I read too much into it. Do you? No, I no. You know, three and nine. Well, it's a bit of an aberration. I mean, they did that wacky, not wacky, but improbable comeback against Utah. Notwithstanding, is you know they didn't play well in a lot of games, and they just didn't play well enough to win most of the time. They got waxed by Arizona. They got waxed by USC. Uh, Stanford at times looked okay, but even you know Stanford's physicality up front was they were just way too physical. The Cal game, I don't even want to remember. And Rutgers, I, I guess, honestly, the most disappointing performance of the year to me was against Rutgers, a, t- a game that you did, you know, it wasn't a boat race like Cal from both sides where teams were getting occasional stops in that game, but really where you should have won that football game. I believe they had a turnover right close to the end zone in the first quarter. I, can't, I think it was one of their only interceptions on the year. I can't remember who made it, but they settled for a field goal from the three-yard line. And that just kind of, to me, set the tone for that game and not necessarily the season. I don't think anybody knew at that point how badly it would go, but we knew that if you can't beat that Rutgers team with Gary Turnova at quarterback, then it's probably not going to go too well. So I think, you know, you watch that game and you're a little disappointed in how it comes out. But that, to me, was the big – they just completely whiffed on that. They should have beat Rutgers and – probably the more disappointing one to me than even Cal because Cal was just it was 92 different kinds of wacky that game and there was just you're never going to see a football game like that again it just was completely bonkers yeah I mean the season was just so full of those just kind of inexplicable results where mm-hmm. you just go how you know and I guess that's why I just look at three and nine and I just kind of go I just kind of you know throw my hands up and do the you know the internet emoticon shrug because I'm just like 
you know, there were so many improbable, um, you know, games and results and just, you know, crazy stuff happening. I mean, from, you know, like you said, Rutgers, um, which, you know, ended up really sort of as you look back. And I, and I know that hindsight is sort of whatever it is. And, um, you know, you end up kind of finding narratives where you want to look for them. But, you know, the, the issues that we saw defensively in that game ended up being there all season long. You know, missed assignments, secondary can't cover, you yeah. know, getting gashed by physical runners. You know, I mean, just all kinds of stuff that, um, you know, that, that, that ended up being problematic throughout the season. And then, you know, the offense maybe, you know, I mean, scored 38, I think it was 38 points, which, you know, mm-hmm. oddly enough, to win a game and, you know, but, you know, making a critical mistake on special teams with, you know, a punt getting fumbled and just I mean, just all of these things that, that happened throughout the year that were just like crazy, you know, and then, you know, up to and including Connor Halliday breaking his leg, you know, and basically removing, you know, the Cougars' best chance at, you know, winning games down the stretch. So, you know, I guess it just, you know, there, there were so many wacky things and so many just like, oh, my God, that really happened kind of things that, you know, like I said, I, I just kind of look at it and go, eh, <laughs> you know, throw my hands yeah. up. I want to talk a little bit about Connor Halliday. You mentioned, uh, obviously, that broken leg against the USC game was just probably the most, one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen, just from a, you know, you personally feel so awful for someone. I don't, I, it, I'd be hard-pressed to think of another time. I'm sure I have, but at this moment I can't quite think of, you know, feeling worse uh, for a person, but before that, um, the dude was on a pace to just, I mean, he had already shattered most WSU passing records, and I suppose that's, you know, you can attribute that obviously to the system he's in, but compared to junior year Connor Halliday, how much better was senior year Connor Halliday? Oh, way better. I mean, I mean, you could see it with, you know, everybody likes to talk about the interceptions. I mean, it's funny, you know, even on our you know, somebody, one of our guys did a post on, you know, ranking the top five quarterbacks, and we devolve into this, you know, where should Connor Halliday be on the list? And, you know, people saying, oh, he's still throwing there too many interceptions. And then I'm just like, you know, dude threw about a billion passes and had 11 interceptions. And, by the way, without really much of a running game at all, you know, I mean, just it, it sort of boggles my mind that, you know, people still hold on to that because he was so good last year and he was – I mean, he, he was, you know, essentially carrying the offense at times like he had to. And mm-hmm. um, I know that people say, you know, the air raid is, well, it's just the air raid. But the honest truth is, you know, the, yes, the quarterback is always going to be the focal point. But, yeah. you know, I mean, he's, he's not meant to do it all by himself. And, you know, Connor really, really stepped up. He was, you know, he was better. He, uh, you know, demonstrated superb command of the offense, you know, made made the right throws most of the time. Uh, threw a ton of touchdowns, you know, cut down his interception rate. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he was very, very, very good. And, you know, as you said, uh, you know, heartbreaking. They didn't get a chance to see it out to the end. We did get to see a little bit of Luke Falk, though. So I guess from the fan standpoint, in those last three games, it was productive. I mean, he played okay against USC. I don't think you can really ask anybody, no matter what level of quarterback they are, to come in. Uh, against a team like USC in you know, the middle of the first quarter and try to put the team on your back and win. But he went down to Corvallis, had an absolutely phenomenal performance against Oregon State. Kind of you know, looked good at times against Arizona State. Uh, in fact, they had a two-touchdown lead at one point in that game, if I remember right, and then it all just completely collapsed on them. But then against uh, Washington, nobody looked good in the Apple Cup. But in terms of you know, kind of a two-parter, what you thought of him – 
in three games. And I think the other thing is a lot of folks think that, you know, that kind of helped, you know, that that had some influence on the quarterback battle coming this fall. I don't think it had as much as some people might think. I think the coaches already kind of knew what they had in Luke Falk, but a, what did you like from him that you saw in three games last year? And B, did it really have too much of an influence on what Mike Leach and company are going to do come August? Well, I don't know that they're going to, I guess it depends on how you look at it. I don't, I don't think they're going to look back at last year's game tape and let that factor in. Mm-hmm. But I think that experience that he got um, will, you know, obviously has, has shaped his command of the offense going forward. Um, he seems like a very cerebral guy, yeah. uh, you know, a, a thinker. And, you know, he, he's going to learn some things from that because we saw him, you know, have really the highest of the highs against uh, against Oregon State. And then you saw him have really the lowest of the lows against uh, Arizona State where he was just, putrid for most of that game um i mean you know picking up chunks of yardage but throwing interceptions that he just yeah passes you just can't make um and so you know and there's an adjustment period for quarterbacks you know brian anderson talks about this you know the air raid is the air raid but quarterbacks have their tendencies and so defenses start to try to pick up on those tendencies and Falk obviously showed some some tendencies against uh you know against oregon state that todd graham and his staff picked up on and all of a sudden they were doing some different things that really kind of confused Falk. So there were large stretches that game where he looked fine and then stretches where he just made bonehead plays, and I think he learned from that. You know, and I think we saw in the spring game, um, you know, Bender can really throw the ball, but, I mean, he just looks he just looks lost, <laughs> you yeah. know, when he's out there running that offense. And, um, you know, Falk looked, uh, looked very sharp. And so, you know, I, 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 I'd be surprised if, you know, if Falk didn't win the job based off of the things that he showed last year, which, you know, I think Mike Leach even said, you know, he was a little bit surprised at what he saw. You know, Falk maybe seems a little bit more like a, you know, he talked about like a gamer, you know what I mean? A guy who um, perhaps, you know, outperforms what he does in practice when he's actually in a game. Yeah. And, and the live bullets are flying. Um, you know, Leach talked about, you know, he was impressed and he was a little bit surprised by some of the stuff that, that Falk did. And so, you know, I think that's in the back of his mind that he was able to do that. And then, you know, the things that Falk learned from that that he's applying now, you know, both in the spring and then his camp comes up. I, I think, uh, you know, I think the offense is in good hands. I don't know that – I think maybe we all overreacted. I mean, I, I did as well to the Oregon State game and just went, holy crap, you know, this is incredible – um, you know, and, and Brian Anderson, you know, being the, the guy that he is, you know, cautioned against overreacting. And, um, and of course, he came back down to earth in the last couple of games, throwing, you know, six interceptions over two games. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm excited. And, and what I saw encouraged me. And, you know, I think it's kind of nice to know that you're not heading into the next season with a complete unknown. Mm-hmm. Jeff Neuser joining us, uh, managing editor of our fine website, kookcenter.com. We're talking about uh, last football season as part of our uh, fiscal year roundup for WSU athletics. Uh, defensively, uh, you know, oh boy, where to start? But um, you had got. I, I mean, I mean, what you know, what really went well for that defense? I mean, I, I think the defensive line play was okay. They got pressure on quarterbacks at times, especially at Arizona State game. They had something like six sacks in the first half, or something like that. But you know, if, if there was a good thing on the defense you could point to what was it if there was anything yeah i mean i I think the defensive line you know i mean anytime you've got a third round draft pick playing in there and and playing fairly well then 
um, you know, that's that's a strong point. Um, you know, it, the interesting thing about the pressure was it tended to come from the interior mm-hmm. with uh, with Cooper and Pole, and then from blitzes in the interior. They didn't get a whole lot of edge rushing. Um, you know, Palacio would give you some a little bit. Uh, McLennan had a decent game or two. Um, you know, so they didn't really get a whole heck of a lot off the edge buyouts. You know, not much of an edge rusher. So, um, you know, it's uh, I would say yeah, probably defensive line. Um, I think the linebackers were pretty solid by the end of the year. Jeremiah Allison had you know really taken over out there, mm-hmm. and Cyrus Cohen was you know solid in coverage. And Peyton Pelour playing in that middle linebacker was definitely an upgrade over uh, over Daryl Monroe. So. You know, I, I, maybe by the end of the year, I might you know, I might even be inclined to say, uh, I might even be inclined to say the linebackers. To be honest, um, you know, as we go forward, I think uh, you know, there's young talent all over the place. Hopefully, they'll they'll be able to, to, you know, take a big step forward this year. It's kind of the story of the defense, though. It hasn't been the last few years. Has been the young talent everywhere, and you're kind of hoping that at some point it kind of pays off and comes through with yeah. you. I guess that's where Alex Grinch comes through this year, but that defensive secondary was just probably amongst the worst I think any of us have ever seen on a football field last year. Yeah, I, I, would, I don't think they were quite at, uh, at the Wolfian levels of about <laughs> you know, five years ago or six years ago. Okay, maybe not that and, bad, yeah. Uh, you know, we had you know some guys who maybe shouldn't, you know, I don't want to embarrass, who, uh, who got turned around by some guys like DeAnthony Thomas. Um, you know, and then just... I mean, I remember the first couple of years of the Wolf regime. It was funny. You know, I used to joke that the guy who is uh, Kuga Sutra over at WSU Football Blog, he used to, he used to joke about uh, how he would measure the progress of the secondary by whether or not they were even in the frame on television <laughs> when the wide receiver was making a catch. And he was kind of measuring improvement by how close they were to the receiver. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that they weren't quite that bad last year. But, but yeah, definitely a problem. Um, you know, very, very young and, and very, very, uh, you know, sort of undisciplined, especially at, especially at safety. And, um, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know what I think Grinch is supposed to help with that. I, I don't know what to think about it going forward. I, I don't look at it and think like, yeah, these guys are just like, you know, just a little bit. They just need a little more experience and they're going to be right there. Um, I, you know, I didn't see that. But, yeah. you know, maybe that's maybe that's what it was. I do want to get back onto one of the more positive things uh, from last year. Something that I keep talking about with folks because I don't I don't think a lot of people recognize it as much, and that was the play of the offensive line. Now I'll grant some people that a lot of the you know some passing plays get out of the hands of the quarterback quicker, but these guys up front continue to improve. They continue to get better. I mean, they were down to something like 28, 29, 30 sacks last year, and that sounds like a lot over twelve games. But when you consider how often the quarterback is dropping back to pass and they're not just handing the ball straight off. That's pretty good protection wise for a quarterback. I think they can improve on their, on uh, their run blocking, but protection wise, they got a lot better last year, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Um, You know, they're definitely moving in the right direction. When we talk about, Hey, they're, they're young. And you know, like we were just talking about with the secondary, right? We were like, well, they're young. You know, I don't know if, you know, if the improvement is going to do it or not, or the the experience is going to, doesn't improve. I actually feel just the opposite with the offensive line. I feel very confident that that is going to be um, a really good unit this year, provided they can stay healthy. Um, you know, when you get all five starters back, and um, you know, at a, at a unit where they really need to work together, um, and then you know, you've got some couple. You'll have a couple of seniors, and then you'll have you know sophomores mixed in the rest of the way, and junior. You know, it's I, 
they're going to be in a good spot, and, and it's exciting, and it's encouraging, and, you know, and the one thing that they can really do to help with their pass protection is to be better with their run blocking. And, yeah. you know, if they can do that and, and really make the run game uh, more of a threat, more of a weapon, then they'll help their quarterback protection just by default because then the defense won't be able to just, you know, pin their ears back all the time and, and, and come after the quarterback. And, and I think they can do that. I, I, I really do. And, and I think, you know, the other part of the equation is that, um, you know, Connor Halliday, you know, one of the things that was pretty clear is if, you know, if he saw a, a run box that was, you know, borderline run. Well, I could run, but I could throw this pass. It was going to pass it. You know, I mean, that was yeah. just, that was kind of Connor Halliday. And, and I think what we saw from Falk, now whether this was just because he was inexperienced or whether this was because how he'll actually run the offense when he gets on the field, but I think we definitely saw a little bit more of a tendency from him to be willing to run the ball. Yeah. And to be willing to, to you know, to check into a run um, and run the ball. So, you know, it will be interesting to see if, you know, the combination of the offensive line getting stronger. Um, you know, again, remember, I mean, half that line, three, you know, three, six, three-fifths of that line, three-six, three-fifths of that line um, was still very young. You know, mm-hmm. those guys are bigger, stronger. You know, they're, they're going to be more mature this year, and maturity is so important um, on that line. You know, they're going to be more mature, and you might have a quarterback who, you know, is a little more willing to run the ball. and. You know, all those things put together, you know, I, I really see big things in, in the future for the offensive line to the point where um, I think it's not going to take long before we're really calling that a strength of the team. Finally, uh, maybe achieve some of that quote-unquote balance a lot of folks insist on having for some reason. Jeff Neusser, the managing editor of kookcenter.com, joining us. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why we need – the passing works fine, but I like running the ball too. Uh, actually, speaking of running the ball, uh, Gerard Wicks and Jamal Morrow continue to be just a really good uh, – Two-headed monster last year. I can't. I still cannot remember who had mono for a long time last year. I think it was Jamal Morrow. Uh, he had mono for a few weeks, but um, they didn't. You know, the the yards per carry average wasn't you know this outstandingly high number. But I think in them, what you got last year, Jeff, was you got two guys who at any time, just with a little bit of space, could explode for a big run and a run you needed. And I think they're probably the best two-headed monster. Uh, WSU's had since they had uh, Tardy, Hutsana, and Woolridge. I think that was back in 2006. So probably the best running back duo at least since then on this team. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's possible. You know, both of them showed tremendous flashes last year. Uh, Morrow with you know a little more wiggle, a little more burst. Mm-hmm. Um, Wicks a little bit more of a, of a straight ahead. Uh, you know, I hesitate to make this comparison, but Marshawn Lynch type, you know, I mean, uh, obviously nobody's really Marshawn Lynch, but he, he's more of a one-cut-and-go, and, and if you're going to get in his way, he's going to punish you um, kind of runner. And, uh, you know, both those guys were exciting, and I think you saw why freshmen have a hard time, um, you know, carrying too big of a load because mm-hmm. uh, both of them seem to wear down pretty significantly, especially uh, especially Morrow, you know, got injured, um, you know, because he is so physical. Um, but you know, to say, and I think he's actually saw a stretch there with, uh, sorry, where I thought about Wicks. Wicks, you know, is so physical. Morrow, I think, wore down a little bit and, and was avoiding contact, I think, a little bit for a time. And so, um, anyway, they just, you know, the, the physical nature of, of the Pac-12, I think, um, kind of got to him as the season went along. And yeah, and uh, I think both of them are more prepared for this year. I think, you know, Wicks is. Ugh, he looked like a beast, a beast at, at the spring game, and yep. um, he's put on weight, and 
Um, I'm, I'm very excited for what he can do, and I'm very excited for Mahler. I'm really excited for Keith Harrington. We might have a three-headed monster, actually, in the, you know, in the end, because Harrington, a converted wide receiver, um, you know, well, should be able to, to really make some impact in the in the passing game. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited. I'm not sure. I've, I've looked at a young trio of running backs and been as excited um, about these three. Obviously, I can't remember when the last time was I looked and went, wow, look at these three young guys. I think they're all very good. Um pretty exciting jeff newser joining us here on the kook center podcast we'll let him go uh after one more question we kind of reviewed uh 2014 for washington state and uh this is the end of the fiscal year so as always we have to look forward to our next fiscal year the 20 i guess it would be the 2016 fiscal year technically but it is the 2015 season um you know you're way too early i don't want to put you on the spot about a, a record prediction but this team, in theory, returns a lot of guys. You get Gabe Marks back on the offensive side of the football, which I think has been kind of forgotten by a lot of folks, and he, how just electric he is as a wide receiver and his ability to move in space. You get a guy in Luke Falk who knows the system relatively well, showed he can run the system at quarterback back. You still don't quite know what you have defensively. Uh, you're bringing in a lot of junior college transfers in the secondary who should help shore things up back there, especially uh, Lanai in the back in the uh, – as a safety improvement this year i think the non-conference schedule might be a little bit easier with portland state wyoming and rutgers so improvement or we may be looking at another three and nine season and a lot of grousing justifiably so i think at this point uh from alumni about mike leach i think six wins is firmly within reach i think this is the most talented roster we've had even though it's still pretty young um this this is the most talent we've had in, in probably close to a decade to be honest um you know the, the recruiting is finally you know rounding into form um and i think all you really just hope is that you know your inexperienced defensive coordinator doesn't end up costing you games i think that's yep. you know that that's the big thing and then you hope that special teams doesn't end up costing you games and that's really what sabotaged them last year is you know you, you had these situations as we talked about earlier where you know the defense you know fell on its face at an inopportune time or special teams fell on its face at an inopportune time and you know you just hope that those things don't end up uh you know happening this season with a you know a new special teams coach a new defensive coordinator you know i think the offense will be fine mm-hmm. you know I, I think there's a chance it could actually be better than last year they may not set the kind of passing records that they set with Halliday, but because of the other things we talked about with um, you know, the offensive line and, and those sorts of things that, that, that I think there's a chance it actually could be better. Um, at the very least, I think they could be better at converting those red zone opportunities into points, yep. which they were so bad at last year. Um, and so what you really hope for is just that the defense, um, you know, or the special teams doesn't cost you games like it did last year. And, and, and I think we don't really have any choice but to expect that that won't happen again. And so if you expect that that won't happen again, then I think it's reasonable to expect, you know, I think it's reasonable to expect six wins. I think that's, you know, we're in year four. Um, you know, it was sort of interesting. I was, I was thinking back the other day about the difference between, um, you know, the feeling now going into year four of Mike Leach and the feeling that was going into year four of, uh, you know, Paul Wolf, um, which, of course, ended up being his last season. And, you know, this definitely feels much less make or break than that one did, but at the same time, you're right. If if it doesn't, if they don't get to, you know, if they don't substantially improve, if they're at four wins or something, people are going to be pissed. You know, people at some point, people are going to expect that this coach you're paying nearly, you know, three million dollars to, 
um, is going to start delivering some results. And, and and to be truthful, I think this is the year it really starts to happen. I think I think six wins. Um, you know, I really can't see them getting any less than five. If they got less than five, I would think that okay, we've got a problem. Yeah. You know, I could see them getting five just because. You know, as we talked about, sports are weird. You know, yeah. weird stuff happens, and you know, whatever. But I, I think six is the benchmark, and I could see them exceeding six too. I mean, I'm not saying six is the ceiling. I think six is the expectation, and um, you know, a game on either side of that, and you're like, okay. And if somehow they can push up to eight, then you're uh, you're pretty darn excited, aren't you? Yeah, I'll see you in Pasadena in Feb in uh, January, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> Jeff Newster, thank you for joining us, sir. Thanks, Michael. All right, we're going to come back and talk about winter sports next because it's all that's going on in the winter is men's and women's basketball. We'll review the year they had. Quite a year for men's basketball, in fact, here in the Peace Center. Hour. Center Hour, a man who is finally back on the best coast and not in a state better known for its syrup anymore. Craig Powers is here. I don't think they make any syrup in Washington, really, do they, Powers? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think maple syrup is a, is a big Washington No, production. No, more apples anyway. Uh, we're here to talk men's basketball, and I think uh, we could really say that uh, probably the best Biggest surprise from last year was just how good this basketball team was. Ernie Kent coming in to be the new head coach, and I think, Craig, it'd be fair to say we were all kind of skeptical about that hire because, you know, Bill Moose just kind of went back to the well again in terms of hiring Ernie Kent, and it was the coach he knew, and he went with him. But, boy, how uh, how our expectations kind of changed as the season went on, yep. Yeah, absolutely, and, and it was, you know, we were skeptical, and I think for good reason, mm-hmm. a lot of Kent's best teams usually come when he has, you know, top 100 type recruiting talent, and, and that's just something that I don't think anyone's expecting him to get at WSU. And then it, certainly he didn't have that last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, after la- after the Ken Bones final season, and, and there really wasn't there wasn't a ton of talent on the team, and we didn't really know what Adam Devontae Lacy was outside of Devontae Lacey what was going to come and, and you know the early season it kind of uh, uh, proved us right at first I should say it, it, it was it was pretty abysmal I know I I read an article after the Idaho loss that said they were on pace to be one of the worst WSU teams in you know probably the last 30 years mm-hmm. or so no, and, that, and that Idaho loss was probably the low point of the season I would say and that big loss to TCU early on just kind of sank everybody down but what what do you think this team kind of did? What what took kind of flipped that switch for them? Was it just taking time to get used to Ernie Kent and his staff, or was it just a matter of these guys hadn't really played a bunch together and they needed to get things figured out in order to be successful on the court? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a little you know a little both. Uh, any coach in any sport when there's a transition, if it's not a, you know a hire from within. Uh, like Oregon does in football, it, 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 there's usually a, a little uh, a, a adjustment period, and I think that's what we saw earlier in the season, yeah, especially as Kent was trying to figure out the rotation and trying to figure out who his, 
players are, and and the players are trying to figure out this new system. And before they were, there was with Ken Brown, there was one guy that was allowed to shoot a lot, and a lot of guys who weren't allowed to. So I think there's still some residual confidence issues. Uh, but once they realized that it was much more open style, that uh, and once they adjusted to Kent as a coach, I, I think that's why we saw a lot of improvement. I think that also has kind of to do with the enthusiasm of Ernie Kent. You could just kind of see the way he acted on the court with his players. And, you know, we don't put a lot of, you know, stock into that kind of stuff at Kook Center, but he just seemed to be a little more enthusiastic. And these guys seemed to really want to play well for him uh, once the season really got going because he really, truly believed in them. Yeah, absolutely. He's very, um, he's very unique personality among coaches, I think, and that's, that's why he was able to be in, on TV while he was out of the coaching job, even though we often like to make fun of his uh, TV acumen. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, he, he, um, he uh, I, yeah, exactly what you said. He, he's, he seems like a great guy to play for, um, and obviously it's a style that's more fun to play in. So mm-hmm. I, th- I think the, the players overall just were very happy uh, with the coaching change in, in that regard. Talking with their own Craig Powers about uh, last the last fiscal year of WSU men's basketball, and uh, I think probably the biggest surprise I've ever had as a WSU fan, so probably dating back more than a decade now, uh, was the emergence of Josh Hawkinson. That just came from absolutely nowhere. I don't think any of us thought we were going to get what we got out of Josh Hawkinson before the season started. And he basically turned into uh, arguably the best player on the team, depending on what kind of night Devontae Lacey had. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, his freshman season, he, he showed some some flashes of, at, at least, you know, especially on the rebounding end, of, uh, that he was a really skilled player and he, and he was a smart player. But, you know, he was, uh, he was soft. He wasn't strong. He, he just didn't look like he had the athleticism. He, he really, but he had a great, you know, his, his body transformed uh, quite a lot over the offseason. He really obviously worked hard and, um, you know, thinned out, got a lot stronger. And then, you know, he still had that skill. And I think mm-hmm. that skill got better. Uh, if you look at his shooting percentages, uh, you got a 6'10 guy shooting 85% from the free throw line. That's ridiculous. And, yep. You know, what, the biggest surprise for me, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's a surprise, but what I'm excited to see is that after he started he started so quickly, it was, you know, you were hoping that he was going to continue it against Pac-12 players, and he did. Mm-hmm. You know, it's his, he, he didn't have any measurable or any uh, significant drop-off in, in any, of the, any of the measurables, and he actually, uh, he actually got better at getting to the free-throw line, because really the only thing that dropped off was his three-point shooting, which... It became less and less important as the season went on, because yeah. um, he was able to go down low, and he actually showed he had a few post moves, and and and, and, and was able to draw some fouls, and, and it's such a weapon for him to, when he's shooting eighty five percent from the line to be able to draw fouls, and, and I'm excited for that portion of his game to get even better. And we talked about Devonte Lacy a little bit in there, but he kind of had, I I think, a little bit of an up and down. Uh, last year, some weeks, you know, he was so on, and other weeks he wasn't. What do you think that really contributed to that? Was it the fact that teams were kind of really paying attention to him on defense because he 
a lot of nights was the real only real scoring threat other than Hawkinson? Or what do you think that kind of had to do with um, his kind of up and down year? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because it, it's what, the real impact for him was his shooting. He was better going inside than he's ever been in terms of drawing fouls mm-hmm. and in terms of uh, getting getting into play and making free throws. Uh, but he, it was really his, his jump shot that, that failed him last year uh, for the most part. And he became more of a streaky outside shooter than a consistent outside shooter. He was always a bit streaky, but even when he was cold, he still was a pretty good shooter. But last year, even overall, his numbers weren't that great. Yeah. Um, in terms of outside, and, and so it, it, you know, it, he had a lot of big loads there, but he's always had that. Um, I, he did play eighty percent of the minutes. It's quite a lot of minutes to play. I wouldn't even be surprised if he was a little tired at times. But um, you know, like you said, the teams were keen on him. Uh, they, he was our one guy, and and so that, that was a that, that that probably hurt a lot. So you know, to, just to so much more defense, probably a lot more guarded shots. And I think he had more freedom to take some some more, you know, ill-advised shots, if you want to call them, mm-hmm. tougher shots, um, which I think reflect in his percentages as well. Yeah. Talking with Craig Powers again about uh, last year's men basketball team. Uh, pretty good, actually. A lot better than I think any of us expected them to do uh, in Ernie Kent's first season. And, Craig, we saw Ike Rebu not have the same up-and-down season as Devontae Lacey, probably a little more down and kind of getting the kinks worked out of his game a little bit. But what kind of potential do you see uh, in him from last year? Because I think for this team to really be successful, he probably needs to be the guy running the point um, in the coming season, doesn't he? Well, yeah, you know, um, I was actually encouraged about uh, by his ability to run the point better last year. He mm-hmm. was actually a guy that could distribute because um, he's very quick and he can't get into the lane, but uh, his freshman year, he was more uh, head of steam. Um, I think he does need to be much better, especially against high shot um, players at, at finishing. Um, his, if you uh, take a look at his numbers last year, once they got into Pac-12 play, his, his shooting inside uh, kind of dropped off the map. Um, he was well over 50% on two-pointers, and then he was you know, at 40% against Pac-12 play, and he needs to finish those shots. Mm-hmm. He needs to get to the free-throw line to be a real distributor. I think if, if, if he you know, continues his upward trend, because I think he definitely showed improvement over his freshman year, and then if Nye Redding can also have a little... Early in the season, Nye, Nye was the was the point guard, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he showed some flashes, you know, a real, uh, he's, a, he's a true, you know, if you, you want to call it a true point guard, he's not looking to shoot yeah. at all, uh, but so I think if, if I can, if I can, you know, show his, you know, continue on his um, trend of being better at distributing, better at scoring, and then we have, we can have nine to spell him, then I think WSU will be as set as they've been at point guard in, you know, several years. Craig Powers here again talking with us about men's basketball, and you brought up Nye Redding, kind of that more pure point guard, uh, you know, just a real distributor. Did a really good job at that at times last year as well. One guy who, again, kind of up and down, and the Cougs kind of really need uh, to kind of get things figured out this year is Q Johnson. And, you know, at times last year, he looked like that guy who could be a really good three-point shooter, and at other times the lid was just completely on the basket. So I think for like a lot of guys on this team, it was kind of up and down with him, wasn't it? 
Yeah, um, the thing about Q is when he's on, he looks like a stud. You know, he's, he's got, uh, he's really smooth and he's really athletic and, and he just looks like he knows what he's doing, you know. But, <laughs> uh, like you said, sometimes it's the lid on his, uh, lid is on the hoop for him and, and, and I, I think he's just, uh, he's, he's so inconsistent. Um, you know, he had, he'll have games when he goes five to five. saw this team kind of, you know, like we were talking about earlier, they kind of struggled a little bit through that initial non-conference schedule, maybe didn't get out of it uh, as well as we might have liked them to, but they picked it up near the end, and things probably really got turned around right when the Pac-12 schedule started. They go down to the Bay Area, lost to Stanford, but beat a pretty good Cal team, and then came to Seattle and uh, forced me to make good on getting a tattoo of the head coach's face somewhere on my body uh, when they beat Washington. Um that that kind of really shifted things for them to be able to go into Seattle and beat a UW team that, although they were missing Robert Upshaw at that point, uh, still probably had the tools to be a pretty decent team. But to go in there and kind of really start them on the process of not being not having a great season either, that probably really picked things up for them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think when you, you started, uh, the real turn for the team, I think, started – Maybe a little bit in the Gonzaga game, but uh, they started playing more up to the potential you would see later in the Pac-12 season around then. Um, but it really, obviously the best stretch of the season was those three games, the Cal and Washington and Oregon. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that Washington, obviously the Washington one is huge. We, we now have, uh, we, have we had a, at the time especially several Washington players on the team and uh, Washington State recruits on the team, I should say. Um, so it's, it's big, it's a great confidence boost, and obviously it was really big for the fan support, because uh, you, you look at them that Thursday game against Oregon, uh, much more, like, at least from the student perspective, many more students in the game made for a much better atmosphere, mm-hmm. um, and, and then, you know, that, that was a sort of a classic game, um, it, it was unfortunate that the, the, they couldn't, they, they kind of went the other direction against Oregon State, but that, that's just what happens with the team that's not, yeah. that's playing really above their heads, and that isn't deep, deeply talented. They had some good guys up top, but um, I think that depth sort of shows in the, you know, in the ensuing four-game losing streak, but um, yeah, that was certainly, uh, I mean, that, that those, those first two wins, Cal and UW, I think that kept some fan interest in for the rest of the year, locked it in. Um, people actually paid attention to the team after that. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I was my interest was waning before that, even though I have to write about them. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> my, my, my 
psychiatrist was waiting just because, you know, I, I spent too many years writing about um, hapless teams, uh, but it was good to, the, that they just started to, you know, they, they had a chance to win a lot yeah. of games after that. Do you think they kind of needed to figure out how to win because, you know, you, you'd gone through the last two years of having Ken Bone as your head coach? And I don't want to say he gave up because I don't think any head coach gives up on a team or anything, but it certainly seemed like they kind of needed to get that confidence to figure out how to win and hold on to a basketball game. I mean, you saw that those Cal and Washington games almost slip away from them. They did manage to hold on. But do you think they needed to figure out kind of how to win basketball games again? Well, I think what you mentioned confidence, and I think that's a thing that a lot of players didn't have under Tim Bone. And mm-hmm. there was just a, a sort of coaching style that he had where certain players were allowed to take shots in, in, in certain situations. But I think we saw with Kent, he, was, he encouraged, I mean, we saw Junior Longers taking 18 footers. And, and yeah. so, like, I, I, I'm sure that. Uh, uh, guys kind of had the green light and, and when you have the confidence uh, that maybe that's what turns into finishing games better. Uh, I think uh, free throw shooting certainly help that when you have a bunch of guys that can shoot free throws, uh, that certainly helps in, in close games to uh, to wrap them up when you have uh, you know, a 6 ten guy that can hit free throws, you have, yeah. you have Lacey who, you know, 80% free throw shooter on, a, on most days. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, I think that that's really that really helped. Uh, obviously, um, I think why you saw some of those leads get narrow at the end is because the team was horrible defensively. Uh, it was just a really bad defensive yeah. team. Um, but luckily, they were good enough offensively to hang on. So we've been talking about last year a lot. That's kind of the point of our fiscal year in review podcast here at uh, kookcenter.com. But I want to talk, I do want to talk at least a little bit about uh, what's coming up. I mean, basketball season doesn't start until early November. So obviously the, the interest, the real solid interest in men's basketball is still a few months away at this point. But uh, I, I think there's legitimate concern from folks about what does this team do scoring wise without Devonte Lacey because now everybody kind of gets focused on by the defense. So what happens offensively for this team? I think defensively they'll probably improve a little bit just by virtue of they probably can't be that bad again, but then again the football team has proven me wrong on that point a lot of times. Um what what do they what do they have to do offensively this year without probably their biggest weapon on the offensive side of the ball? Absolutely. Um, with the departure of Lacey and even with Rayleigh, there's a lot of shots to go around. Uh, Rayleigh actually shot the ball quite a bit when he played, and, and Lacey obviously had the ball in his hands quite often. Um, Lacey is, the, is, is tough because he, he was such a focal point of the offense. Uh, the one, I guess you could say, um, thing that mitigates the loss is that he wasn't much of a creator. So they, uh, they, he, he could get his own shot for sure on, on a step back and a drive, but um, he wasn't necessarily making the offense for everyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would say he probably drew some attention from other guys, so that certainly helped. But um, and I, I, it is going to be tough. Uh, they don't have another guy that's done this before in college who's been the go-to guy. Because um, even Josh, you know, I think his, his sort of usage numbers. Uh, you don't see big guys like him. He's not going to be a guy that's just going to start hoisting 
shot. He doesn't have that sort of game. Mm-hmm. He, needs, he needs to be set up more. You know, he needs a guy to. He needs a pick and pop for a, for an eighteen footer. He needs to get posted up in the in the lane. Um, so it, it really, it's going to come down to you know, like you said earlier, we need a guy like really the guy that has that capability, that that talent, Q. Um, and just will he use it in that in that way? I don't yeah. know, but. Um, there's gonna there's there's a, there's definitely an open spot for the the number one guy the go to guy on the team, um, but there's also the possibility that there won't be a, a go to guy that they're gonna just spread it out more you know um, maybe I could up his his uh, production a little bit and and a few other guys but um, it's definitely gonna it's a, it's a huge question mark uh, yeah. and, and when you look at this team the, the offensive steps forward it took last year um, it, 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 it's going to be tough to keep that going without a guy um, that like I said that's taking the, most of the shots and drawing mm-hmm. attention away um, but hopefully but it, because if he wasn't you know the primary creator that, that'll help some give me a really quick two early prediction on how this team fares next year I, I think the NCAA tournament probably out of the question again but not exactly a problem with that when you're trying to rebuild a program. Is the CBI or the NIT within reach for this team? Well, it all, it all depends on how they handle the non-conference. I mean, if they, they came in, I, I will say I, I would not be surprised if they took a dip in win total in Pac-12 conference. Mm-hmm. I think they they were there was a few pretty fortunate wins, uh, you know, that could have gone the other way, and they then they had they also had a few really big sneakers where they got their butt kicked. Yeah. Um, uh, so I, with, with the loss of Lacey, I'm not sure if the team will necessarily be better um, than they were last year against Pac-12 teams. I, I, I think seven wins is a good goal for them to hit again. Um, but like, I think what prevented them from going to a, a tournament like the CBI last year, even though CBI doesn't require the teams have any records, but um, was the core non-conference. You know, any WSU team in the past that has went to the NIT, the CBI, they, they had they put together a, a good number of wins in the non-conference and, 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 you know, beat all the teams that they're supposed to, and they did not do that last year. They needed to be Idaho, they needed to be Santa Clara, um, even, and then they needed to probably step up and beat one of the three of Utah, TCU, or USCB just to, to have a successful non-conference. Yeah. So I think that's what you'll see. Um, if, if we are going to do any sort of postseason tournament, whether it be one of those, the CBI, or I think the NIT is a big stretch. I don't know if they have that possibility, yeah. but if we're going to see that, that we got, they're going to have to notch some, uh, notch some early wins and maybe come out of the non-conference with even nine or ten wins because I, I, I don't see them. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I don't see them improving on seven wins this year. I think this is going to be a. A, a more of a trans, another like more of a transition year with because it's going to be a really young team. Mm-hmm. But um, but so that's why I think you know we're we're going to need nine or ten wins out of the non-conference schedule. Greg Powers, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Michael. All right, we're going to talk about women's basketball next. Kind of a disappointing season to say the least from them. We'll analyze it a bit, see where they're going from here in the future.
are back on the Cougs Center Hour. Our fiscal year wrap-up for Washington State Athletics winding to a close here as we talk about women's basketball. Baseball coming up next. Brand new head coach coming into this fiscal year after a really abysmal uh, last year for the baseball team. But let's talk about women's basketball here. And that was a team that, you know, we saw should have probably, I, I think probably more expectations for this team than any other June Doherty team since she was hired at WSU a number of years ago. You had Leah Galdera, you had Tia Presley, Shaley Dean Shaw, Taylor Edmondson played some capable minutes. Mariah Cooks was good as well off the bench. Danielle Awa was really good as well. Penelope Pavlopoulou was really good off the bench. So what happened to this team? What happened to them putting it all together really this year? I think a lot of it just starts with you had a team that could shoot the lights out at times. And they beat some good teams. They beat Maryland in Puerto Rico during a tournament down there. They hung with Nebraska for a while. That got away from them. They beat Gonzaga, perennially a very good basketball team. But then they got into a Pac-12 schedule. And this Pac-12 this year was open. It was a wide open conference. Stanford, not very good. Oregon State, the only really true dominant team in the conference was Oregon State. The only one. And Washington State couldn't take advantage of that. Look at these close losses on January 9th against California, 70-62 in Pullman. Losing in overtime to Stanford, a game that got away from them at the end there as well. Losing by three to Oregon State in a game in which they led plenty in Corvallis the day after that, that part of a four-game losing streak. Then they go on, they rattle off three straight wins, and then five straight losses. They got trounced by Stanford, lost by three to Cal, lost by one to Oregon, lost by five to Oregon State. Those are games you have to win. you got to pick up those wins if you want to get to the postseason. They got to the women's NIT again, lost again in the first round to Eastern Washington by two. But you can't let those games get away from you if you want to go to the postseason. And especially, they played Washington, beat them by 11 in Seattle, and then came to Pullman, and Washington beat them by 40. 40. I think it was just the relative inconsistency of this team. And when Shaley Deanshaw went down against Oregon State, it certainly didn't help things. But the shooting just was not there at times. This was such a streaky team that the shooting would just disappear altogether. All of a sudden, there is a lid on the bucket, and Leah Galdera, probably your most dependable scorer, can't put anything in. Nothing gets in. The defense would break down, and June Doherty has to call a timeout to get things reorganized. That has always kind of seemed to have been the thing for Washington State with June Doherty, is the team's kind of lose focus a little bit and then pick it back up after a timeout. But there's also issues with shot selection. Sometimes at times last year, that team's shot selection just became awful. Nobody picked a good shot out. Wild lands trying to go to the bucket. I mean, we see time after time after time. Those players, very frustrating to see them go in and take a suboptimal lay-in you have open players, feet from the basket. But there were other times where just nothing went down. Nothing went through the cylinder for them. At all. And so, I, it's, it's just hard to explain that with them. The good news is for this basketball team is they only lose Tia Presley. Now, Tia Presley was a hell of a scorer for them. 
But, but, they still have Leah Galdera. They do lose Shaley Deanshaw, but they have Danielle Awa coming back. Mariah Cooks back as well. You have a lot of good scorers. Some younger players too. Nike McClure from WF West High School in Chehalis. Should be getting a little more playing time. So you can come back next year and really get things going with this team. The question is whether they should expect to make the NCAA tournament again, and I think they should. I think the Pac-12 is going to be just as wide open again next year as it was this year. It's not unreasonable for them to expect that. And June Doherty has just... it. It's now been almost eight years. Something's got to give on these women's NIT early exits. And I know that non-revenue sports, you know, at WSU, it's kind of just, as Kyle Sherwood has said before, just don't embarrass the school and we'll be fine. But like something, anything out of this team so many years later from a really good coach in June Doherty. But I think a dissatisfying season to say the least. I think the players would tell you the same thing. But there were spots of brilliance, and I know that team can recover and play much better in the coming year. We'll talk about baseball coming up next after a really quick recess for the fight song, and then it's Dunderhead of the Week and Ask Michael Anything time here on the Cube Center. Center our final like a uh, real life segment here of the fiscal year wrap up. We're going to talk a little bit about baseball and we'll get into ask Michael anything and the dunderhead of the week. And actually we got a few months to pick from here. So uh going to have to think of a really good dunderhead, but I think we got a good one for it. Uh, I think this baseball season kind of punctuated by the fact that uh, Donnie Marbot obviously relieved of his duties um, at the end of the year. And I think to most everyone, it was kind of a surprise that it, Maybe it didn't happen any sooner. It didn't happen after last season. In fact, Donnie Marbot got a contract extension through, well, next season, the 2016 season, just to probably not be a lame duck, at least, to Bill Moose. But I think a lot of us were really surprised that it didn't happen last year. The team got a little bit better this year. Uh, that's not saying too terribly much, considering how poor they were. Uh, in 2014, they finished nearly dead last in the conference, or near it, if I, or almost in it, if I remember right. Uh, not much better this year, and in fact, uh, struggling against some of the conferences. Not as good teams, didn't play well in their non-conference schedule. Couldn't hit too well. They had Joe Pistorisi, Ian Hamilton, some of the two of the best pitchers in college baseball, but uh, just nobody could really time, no timely hits. And it just was a struggle all year for them. And I think the other thing, too, that a lot of us were frustrated by were just by Donnie Marbut's managing was not very good at all. You know, I I know in college you need to kind of manufacture some runs a little bit more, but Donnie Buntball was in full effect all year and his overuse of Joe Pistorisi, uh, you know, although uh, pervasive in college baseball to kind of overdo it on your 
uh, number one starter. I still dislike it a lot. These guys are going to have a career after college, or at least hopefully they will in Joe's case. I think he's got a pretty dang good shot. They're going to have a career after college. So running them out there for 130, 140 pitches, or in Ian Hamilton's case, I think he was used to going you know, two innings at most last year, last season, and he went, I think, five and a third against Arizona State in one game and threw something like 85 pitches. That's just way too many for him. Now, i probably stretch him into a starter here, I believe, is what the plan is. But still, that's a lot of pitches for a guy who's not used to throwing that much this year. You let go of Donnie Marbet. And I think the other thing, too, is a lot of folks thought it was about about what he said to the spokesman review, about what he said to Jacob Thorpe. But I, I don't think that was it. I think that was just kind of, you know, you'd already crossed the bridge of being, fire, or of being fired. You might as well set it ablaze and just burn the sum bitch down, right? I mean, you might as well just get rid of everything and just burn the whole thing down. If you know what's coming down the pipe to you on Monday, you might as well just get it out to Jacob Thorpe on Sunday. I don't think that was the reason why. And if Bill Moose, if that's really the reason why Bill Moose fired him, then we need to have a serious discussion with Bill about his priorities in terms of uh, hiring and firing coaches and what it takes to be fired at Washington State. I think Bill Moose is a smarter man than that. He knew he was going to fire Donnie Marr, but quite frankly, he hit a home run with Marty Lee. I mean, we, you know... Marty Lease, of course, you know, kind of, quote-unquote, won the press conference when he was hired, you know, said, you know, you can win a championship at Washington State, 1976, I think it is, way too long without going to the College World Series, especially at a school like Washington State with the history and the pedigree of baseball that they have at WSU. I mean, I th- I've told people, anybody who will listen, in terms of pedigree, in terms of history, baseball is the best sport at Washington State. You owe a lot of that to Buck Bailey, you owe a lot of it to Bobo Brayton. Two guys who coached that team for almost seven decades. You only had two coaches, except for in World War II. I think Jack Friel coached the team for a little bit. But Buck Bailey was surfing in World War II, so you really have a choice. So, effectively, two coaches for seven straight decades at Washington State. And then you kind of went through five now after Bobo Brayton retired. But Marty Lease, again, you use that word like pedigree. Marty Lease comes with a pedigree. He was at Oregon State where they built a hell of a program with Pat Casey down there. And then he took off for Oklahoma State. And as Bill Moose said, they built up that program down there. He's a really good top-notch recruiter. And he thinks he can do it without the facilities right away. I mean, he said that in his press conference that, you know, to him, the most important thing is getting in a parent's home and ensuring them that their child is going to be well taken care of. I don't know how you know, true or untrue that is at Oklahoma state they didn't really have facilities and they seemed to win do okay right away. But I, I would still like to see WSU catch up in the facilities race a little bit. I mean, they are still lagging way behind just their teams that they share the Pacific Northwest with even Gonzaga to a certain extent. So they, they need, they do need to catch up in that regard. The baseball players shouldn't have to take a moped over from bowler gym and have to make that walk twice a day uh, to change in and out of their clothes. So they still need to make a jump up in that facilities race. But I think a guy like Lee's is going to make it a lot easier on Washington state to do that because there's a better than zero chance. They end up winning right away next year. They get in there and they win right away with Marty Lee's. There are some decent pieces on this team, some pretty good starting pitching coming back Ian Hamilton might be stretched out to a starter. The offense still, you know, looks a little, you know, a little hazy. But if there's one guy who can do it, it's probably Marty Lee's, a guy who's got plenty of experience taking a not very good team and turning it around 
right away. And I think at Washington State, you know, we, we kind of place priorities, as most college athletic departments do, is football first, men's basketball second, baseball third. And at WSU, baseball really should, I, you know, it, it needs that support because it has been historically the very best program at Washington State. And it's not even close. And I mean that historically. I mean, not recently, men's basketball, probably, well, women's soccer probably, and women's rowing as well. But historically, baseball was the best program. And it, it needs to be that again. And Marty Lees is probably the guy that can do it. A really good recruiter, knows the area really well. And this is his first head coaching gig, and he's in his early 40s. There's a better than zero chance this is where he ends up for a long time. And I hope it is. And I hope they make it lucrative enough for him to stay. Because right now, he seems like a home run hire for Bill Moose. But then again, you know, all hires kind of seem like a home run at first. Maybe not Ernie Kent to some of us, as we discussed earlier, but he's turned into a hell of a hire. When we come back, Dunderhead of the Week Months. Whatever. Dunderhead of the week and ask Michael anything. We're going to wrap it up here on the Cooper Center Hour. Fiscal year wrap up. Dunderhead of the Week for the Fiscal Year Wrap-Up is brought to you by Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Bruh! What are you doing? No, you know, amazingly, Donald Trump. Not our Dunderhead of the Week. We try not to veer too much into politics here, but... That, that video of him riding down the escalator was probably the most weird thing I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, our Dunderhead of the Week. Oh, man. I, I guess to me, this is, you know... This is an easy one. If you follow me on Twitter, you know I kind of rail against the, the 12s, the Seahawk 12, 12, 12 feet. I hate it when the news station do that. Take your 12 feet and send, oh my god, I hate that. But, your Dunderhead of the Week, and hell, the month really here, it's got to go to John Schneider. Look, dude, pay the man. Pay the man his money. And you know who I'm talking I'm talking about Russell Wilson. Pay the man his money. You are dragging this out way farther than it needs to go because we all know you're going to do it, dude. And if you don't, you got problems. <laughs> Pay him his money. Pay him his money. Pay the man. It's that, that easy. Just pay the man, baby. Let's do it. Let's go right in and ask Michael anything. have any new puns for Luke Falk? That asked by Glenn Dunnigan on Duggan on Twitter. Again, if you want to ask these on Twitter in the future, hashtag Cooter Hour, I take them at any time. I haven't, I mean, there's just, there's no Falcon limit to it. It's going to get old at some point. Like, it's, it's going to get, like, overly, just completely irritating. I'm not sure if it's reached that at some, or if it's reached that yet, but it might Dominic Sheldon at Dominic underscore Sheldon asking if Clay Thompson and Aaron Baines played for the Thunder, would you consider liking OKC at all? Hell no. Absolutely not. No. Love them both. 
no. Root for them to have all the individual success in the world, but I do not want them winning at all. At Mr. Tommy G, man, if you could replace penalty kicks as a way to break ties in soccer, what would you replace them with? Simple one-on-one goalie. One-on-one between the goalies. Length of the pitch. Put the ball in the middle. One-on-one. I mean, it just, it, I, we've had this discussion before. It's just that penalty kicks are the least bad solution. There's no real good solution, especially in tournament play. There's no really great solution to the problem. You can't just play endless overtimes. It puts the people who play endless overtimes at a disadvantage to somebody who won in regulation. So, it's like the least bad option kind of thing. From our very own Zane Murphitt. Uh, seeing as how, was, how I, speaking about me, was responsible for the classic Love's Got Butt Sweat b-ball champ versus UCLA, I would like to clarify. I just jumped up on the concrete, bent over and pointed at my ass, screaming that at him. Uh, what are you getting the WSU away section chanting in LA after the P. Diddy kettleball kerfuffle? I think it's, it's got to be a play on I'll be missing you, like, I'll be kettleballing you. The beat doesn't really work. Every kettleball you take, every... I'm going to work on that. It's got to be that, right? It's got to be that. At Ryan Cali 18, punch drunk love in terms of sports teams, Timbers, Niners, Huskies. Oh, man. Probably punch the... Oh, God. I don't know. Can't we just, like... Can I just put them all in a car and force them to sit in Friday afternoon traffic in Seattle? Is that an option, too? I'll ask you to do that anyway. Another one from WSU from Zane. Uh, you can pick any two current or former WSU players to be on your HoopFest squad. Who are you picking and what's the team name? We're going to pick Caleb Force and Aaron Baines. Call it the Doey White guys. And who's on your arch rival squad? One enemy from life and two b-ball players. Ryan Appleby and Benoit Overton. I hate them both. And then, uh, I don't really... Th- I. <laughs> Like, somebody from high school, probably. Probably Terry Agnew. No, I'm kidding. Terry was fine. Uh, he was the baseball coach at Woodenville. He didn't really like me, but that's fine. Uh, I don't really know. I don't really have any enemies, so to speak, in, like, real life. I don't think I do. Someone tell me if I don't, or if you think you're my enemy, give me a call back. Thank you for indulging us on this 90-minute edition of the Kook Center. We're going to come back, start hitting you up once a week, starting in August with these bad boys. Once football season really gets cracking, we'll be back in form on the Coop Center Hour.